Hello, and welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Centre of Governance and Human Rights here at the University of Cambridge. I'm Talia Zibitz, and I'll be your host on today's show. This episode, we're talking about reproductive rights. The Centre for Reproductive Rights, a global advocacy group, states that reproductive freedom lies at the heart of the promise of human dignity, self-determination and equality, as promised by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But are reproductive rights really guaranteed in human rights law? From the black protests in Poland to Trump's reinstation of the global gag order, we'll be discussing the state of reproductive rights in the world today. I'm joined in the studio by regular panellist Eva Milne. Hello. As well as three guests from the Reproductive Sociology Research Group here at Cambridge University. Dr. Katie Dow's research focuses on the intersection between ethics, morality and reproductive health care. Thank you for being here, Katie. Thank you. It's great to be here. We also have Mwen Zablel, a lecturer in the sociology of reproduction. Hello there. And finally, Dr. Robert Prelat, who's researching gay parenthood. Thanks. I'd like to kick off the discussion by asking you a bit about what the Reproductive Sociology Research Group does here at Cambridge. Yeah, thanks. We're a research group based in the sociology department here at Cambridge. We're led by Professor Sarah Franklin, who's a very well-known figure in reproductive sociology and anthropology. We have a group of postdocs working here and PhD students, and we recently started an MPhil in the Sociology of Reproduction, which is led by Mwenza here, who's our lecturer in the Sociology of Reproduction. So we're basically uh, planning to take over the university just on the basis of reproductive health and rights. But we particularly look at reproduction in relation to assisted reproductive technologies and the kind of social, ethical and political issues that they raise um, from a broad range of views and sort of representing a very broad range of people and different experiences. So I guess you're the group to ask, what are reproductive rights? Um, For me, I think it's important to understand that reproductive rights are not a totally different species of rights, but rather a window through which or a lens through which we can explore lots of other rights and issues, such as right to be free from discrimination, the right to health, or the right to control one's fertility. And it's important to understand that these rights underpin the compound of reproductive rights, and each of these singular rights continues to suffer violations around the world. In India just two years ago, and no doubt on a lot of occasions since, 14 women died after they accepted to undergo uh, sterilisation in a government camp and they were paid £14 for this treatment. Or alternatively in Australia, where during the 1990s, over 1,000 girls with disabilities were forcibly sterilised. I think that's a really important point. Reproductive rights don't have an explicit place in something like the UN Declaration of Human Rights. So you see that these rights are being interpreted and coming out of rights that already exist, such as the right to bodily integrity, the right to self-determination. Drawing on that, there's a few reasons why they don't sort of seem to fit with um, the framework that already exists. And one is that reproduction really does reach across all kind of domains and boundaries of life. And so it is genuinely quite difficult to fit it into a particular box. But another reason is that it's very contentious. And perhaps that's related to the fact that it reaches across different domains. And that's something that we're obviously going to be talking about because abortion really is the kind of lightning rod for the controversies with reproductive rights. 
But I think thirdly, I'd also draw attention to the fact that reproduction is so often inextricably bound up with gender. And that, again, is another contentious issue, which is very difficult to legislate for across different cultural boundaries and in particular political situations. So the debate around abortion is often framed as one of polarities, anti-choice, pro-choice, anti-women, pro-woman. So my question to you, Robert, Katie and Moenza, is um, what is the effect of having the debate in such polarised terms and why can't we value autonomy and respect life at the same time? Moenza, do you want to jump in on that? Well, I, I, one of the things I think is interesting is um, the way that actually within the US context, certain parties, certain people represent themselves as having both of those kind of positions. But in a way, I think that can be that can be a bit of a danger. So often um, Democrats will say abortion is terrible and regrettable and it should never happen and kind of really egg that kind of pro-life perspective and really give it lots of space and then say, but, 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 but there are these certain crises, we need to leave space, which I think is not necessarily the only way of, of not having it be polarized. But I think that's that's the only space that some people feel like they can argue for this for. Yeah, I suppose it comes back to what you said, Katie, about how the debate spans so many contentious areas. We can't have a black and white debate. And in between pro-choice and anti-choice, it's not even a grey area. It's extremely complex and intricate and multi-layered because this is the reality of women's lives. Yeah, I mean, I, I think trying to make it a binary or polar debate is in itself a political move. And it's it's uh, expedient, probably more for the so-called pro-life side, because it stymies full debate. And it means that the pro-choice side end up sort of feeling that they have to take a certain stance. And they sometimes do have to feel that they have to do that. Yeah, obviously, no one wants abortion, but that Moenza just talked about, you know, I've heard lots of pro-choice people use that kind of language. And I understand it from a pragmatic point of view, but it very much reflects the way that the debate has, the terms of the debate have been set probably more by the pro-life side. And again, I'm obviously playing into that polarity by talking about two sides. And one thing that I would mention is there's a classic work of um, medical anthropology by Faye Ginsberg called Contested Lives, which looked at both sides of the debate, again, using the binary, in a small town in America. And what she found and what is often overlooked in these debates is that actually there was a huge amount of agreement and overlap between both sides and what they saw as important and the kind of ideas and values that they were bringing into the argument on each side. So, uh, for example, they were both concerned about men taking responsibility for pregnancies. But on the pro-choice side, they felt that therefore women shouldn't be left with an unwanted or unplanned pregnancy. On the pro-life side, they felt that then men should be stepping up to the plate. And I'm sure there would be a lot of overlap in those views. And she talks about people in private sort of actually having a lot in common, but they felt that they couldn't say that in public. Robert? I think a common sentiment that um, I come across uh, when I speak with, with people back in Poland, um, where I come from, is similarly to what Mwenza said, the, 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 the kind of explanation of one's stance that tries to capture the, you know, the, the arguments pro and against. And I think it's quite key, uh, you know, at what point and in what kind of position the but um, mm. appears mm. in a sentence. So, so a very common 
attitude that you would encounter in Poland, both among women and men, uh, would be, well, I don't agree with, um, with some of the things that the government is suggesting or some of the things that the Catholic Church is saying, but I also don't agree with abortion on demand. And I guess the words that are used in, in those arguments are quite telling um, in terms of, you know, what is at stake and, and the term on demand, you know, or upon request, it, it's, it, it is quite revealing in terms of, you know, what we're talking about here. And I think it is quite important to sort of see, you know, how quickly that but appears in, in, in those arguments and what, you know, what are the, the arguments that are being weighed, weighed against each other. Well, one of the things we wanted to talk about today is the black protests that swept Poland in the October of last year, where it did seem that there was this public upswell of feeling behind a new law trying to further restrict access to abortion within the country. Could you speak to what happened there a little bit? Sure. Um, so at the beginning of October, masses of people, mainly women, but also supported by men, took to the streets of Poland, um, in Warsaw, the capital in particular, uh, but also in, in, in a lot of other cities. I think it's estimated that around 100,000 um, people were on the streets at the time across the country. It was a response to um, the, the government's consideration of a proposal to change the law and um, basically make um, abortion in all cases illegal, uh, changing the law, which already is one of the most restrictive in Europe. Immediately after a couple of days, the government actually changed the position and uh, currently the government is... Um, uh, trying to to basically address their agenda by by introducing other measures, like for example, most recently for life plan, which is a one-off payment uh, to women who who decide to give birth to a disabled child. Uh, it's it's a one-off payment of four hundred to four thousand slotters, which is around eight hundred pounds. And it is what it is—a one-off payment that is being introduced as a, as a way of trying to reduce the number of abortions. So there's definitely different solutions being sought by the government at the moment that wouldn't perhaps lead to such protests as, as, as they did initially, but uh, it is an ongoing issue. Robert, were you shocked or taken aback at all when this raft of legislation and policies arrived in Poland? Or does this speak more to the way that people view women in Polish society? Well, um, the government that is in power at the moment and that has been in power for um, almost a year and a half now, um, it, it is a government that is introducing different kinds of legislation, legislations at a very high speed. And uh, this is one um, one of the issues that um, is not entirely surprising, you know, to see to see going on, and and that is very maybe you know easily drowned in the in the number of changes that are taking place. What is crucial here is really the, the very intimate relationship that the government has with the Catholic mm -hmm. Church, which again is not to say that this relationship was not there before. Every government since the early 1990s has very much sort of been attentive to uh, where the church, the church stands on, on, on various issues. Uh, but just the proximity of the government uh, to the church and the ways in which, uh, you know, those relationships play out now. Um, this is what's unprecedented. 
So for the example of Poland, the proposal for stricter abortion laws came after an online petition gained 450,000 signatures. So there you have that huge popular upswell of support. But then on the other side, you get thousands of women marching on the streets for the black protests in over 60 cities. And so these rights are really being played out and contested in the public sphere. I wonder if that's something that a sociological approach to reproductive rights rather than maybe a more legalistic approach can reveal to us? Yeah, I, I mean, the way that I... The way that I'm interpreting a lot of this stuff is that there's a people feeling having having sort of national identities that are tied to particular kinds of gen relationships of gender, and maybe they don't necessarily think about that gender aspect first. But there's a strong kind of idea about uh, women's behavior being potentially dangerous. I suppose a, a, an idea that that maybe women will get out of control. And uh, and a view of you know what kind of nation are we and do we need to control this kind of thing? Yeah, I think it go it speaks to like an idea of what what people think women are capable of, what kind of beings they are. I mean, I find it kind of interesting that people believe that you know people would just be going for abortion on demand just all the time. You know that that this is people just want to do it like it was a drive through. And I think there's um some of it has to do with sort of what's happening in terms of of capitalism. And the rights you have as a consumer and, and a fear of the rights of a consumer having free access to things being a potential kind of eroding thing. I think that there's a connection there between kind of that gender politics and, and what's happened in the economy, especially for a place like Poland, but, but also lots of places. I think it really is similar uh, when we sort of look at the rhetoric to, to the debates that are going on about immigration, debates that are going on uh, around, you know, social benefits. I think an interesting question is, you know, what infuriates people and, you know, what, what people do get angry about these days, you know, the fact that someone's rights are being questioned or is it the fact that, you know, some, something is being taken away from you or, you know, the, 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 the people who, who are like you and, you know, that, that you can sort of sympathize with. I think, you know, it, it can explain to an extent the fact, um, you, you know, the, the, what kinds of stories are being, you know, circulated, what, what kinds of stories are being picked up on by different people. So, you know, uh, yeah, abortion on demand, you know, that the, there is this kind of image or, you know, this kind of perception that, you know, there's this, you know, crowds of women who just, um, you know, want to have, want to have an abortion, uh, which I think is quite similar to, to, to what, how, how we sort of debate issues like, um, benefits or, or, or migrants, you know, is it, is it, um, the fact that, um, is it about, is it whether people want to do this thing or are forced to, like, are migrants just, just beating at the door because they can't, they want, they're desperate to be here and take from us or, are there people in a crisis that you have to respond to the crisis? It's interesting because I think that discourse is also picked up on the other side. So you have, I think, the Irish um, pro-abortion, pro-choice campaigns have that slogan, trust women. And so that, like, what you talk about, minds are placing women at the center of this narrative. It's a really interesting rubric to look through reproductive rights, which, for better or worse, does tend in, I guess, the public narrative to center on women. From the pro-choice perspective, the women should be at the centre of the debate, but actually that's not always the case. One of the major sort of uh, strategies of the pro-life side is to put fetal rights at the centre of the debate. There's a lot to that, but what it does from a rhetorical perspective is that it removes women from the centre of the debate, and that is very dangerous in, in my view. 
Um, I just wanted to add something as well about the UK context, which might be slightly tangential, but is interesting to me. So sort of picking up on Wenzel's point about how nationalist points are often made through reproductive rights arguments. In the UK, it's always interested me and sort of fascinated me and slightly puzzled me that abortion is treated as a matter of conscience in, in Parliament here. And I've never been entirely sure what exactly that means, really. I mean, what the idea of matters of conscience is, um, and maybe you know better, Eva and Talia. <laughs> um, I'm not a, a legal expert, but I think it's very interesting because it implies that there's something about reproduction and sort of, and no doubt this is linked to the fact that reproduction is often seen as a private and intimate, you know, family only kind of thing, that even in Parliament, it can be treated as something that crosses party lines and which, you know, the usual kind of political strategies of whipping and things don't actually apply. And that suggests some broader things about what reproduction means. And I guess also relates back to this broader question we've been talking about of why reproductive rights seem to be so contentious wherever you're speaking about them. You know, when we think about laws, what are they there to do? Are they there to promote the good? And especially in in what what ends up being this kind of sensitive and controversial territory, people kind of feel like, you know, no, I want to promote what I think is actually good. And the fact is, a lot of people don't feel like abortion is good. But are our laws there to promote the good? The majority are not, as a matter of fact. And people feel very comfortable with that, for whatever reason, uh, when there are laws of other types, you know, laws that may have paradoxical relationships with the outcome, like, you know, environmental protection laws that actually allow you to degrade the environment. And, you know, people feel like, well, you know, eh, maybe you need to allow corporations some freedom or individuals some freedom, but in some territories, that's fine. So laws can be about freedom and protecting freedom. But in this area, people find it very hard to allow. Something you said, Mwenza, about kind of the utility or the futility of the law. Abortion cannot just be theoretically legal, it has to be practical and accessible. And so many laws in countries such as Poland and so many other places around the world, and there's a raft of human rights cases on this point, prove that restrictive legislation leads to a chilling effect on medical practitioners who fear being criminally sanctioned for carrying out abortions on women who desperately need it on the basis of health. If we're talking about the kind of international healthcare and funding for abortion providers around the world, we can look to the Trump administration's recent global gag order, which is not a new piece of legislation in America. It's actually a Reagan era executive order reinstated by Bush in 2001, then removed by Obama when he came into office and now put back into place by Trump. So this isn't something new. But what it does, and I think this speaks to your point, Wenza, on laws and good laws and capitalism and this idea of where are our tax dollars going? What are they funding? Is what they're funding something good? Well, the decision of the Trump administration is that abortion is not something good and American tax dollars should not fund it. So now international organizations that provide for reproductive rights are faced with a choice to either provide information and access to about abortion or to receive American funding, which is a big chunk of the funding that they have access to. Um, so what do we see happening with the state of reproductive rights in the United States? Well, I mean, it's it's very clear that this is a moment in which people who have wanted to severely curtail reproductive rights are seizing their opportunity. They're, I think that their ambition of a lot of people who are surrounding Trump and are Trump supporters is to really seize, seize the moment and, and shut things down, even in terms of contraception, just, just to generally 
to, to create huge restrictions on the lives of women. So the rhetoric of, of fetal protection, it's almost an expired idea for a lot of people. They feel like, well, no, we've now got the chance to really go and say, you bad women need to be held under control. And I think that's been, you know, lots of people are very, feel very comfortable <laughs> saying that at this point. Um, yeah, and that's something that was explicitly vocalised by Donald Trump in the election campaign when he said women who sought abortions should be punished. But I just wanted to also not let Mike Pence get uh, <laughs> a free pass in this because, you know, it's so easy to focus on Trump, unfortunately, um, because that's exactly what he wants you to do. And of course, you know, the reinstatement of the global gag order is is really worrying and there's lots to worry about in terms of Trump, but also we do need to worry about Mike Pence, who has an even longer history of being anti-choice and he was the first vice president to address the March for Life this year, which others have previously, very right-wing Republicans have felt was too too much for them. And as governor of Indiana, before he was vice president, he brought in quite a few anti-abortion measures, including denying abortion on the basis of fetal anomaly and requiring that fetal tissue be buried or cremated. On the discussion of Mike Pence, it's a great time to expand the debate. What other reproductive rights besides just abortion are under threat in the United States? Are things like same-sex marriage and all the other and all the other achievements under the Obama administration are they also under threat during this presidency? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, the people that I that I know are are really bracing for just any kind of attack. I mean, it's very clear what people in the administration think about the rights of LGBT people. Their, their rights as parents are are heavily under threat. That's, you know, something that has been the case in the past and and maybe has led up a bit. So I would I would be concerned about adoption rights and certainly yeah, marriage. I, I think it's all under threat. Um, and also, I would particularly draw attention to the future of Planned Parenthood, both in America and globally, in terms of the International Federation of Planned Parenthood. And I read something recently, which is, it's interesting and shocking and heartening all at the same time, which is that a lot of American women have recently been clamoring for having IUDs fitted, um, intrauterine devices, which are these, what, what are called long acting reversible contraceptives. So they usually last around three years. And I think it's, it, it's no coincidence, and this is what analysts are saying, that the length of time that a coil works for is not that different from a presidential term. And so women in America are thinking, okay, I may not have access to the pill for much longer. I'm going to take a different approach. There's There's been a long-term debate about whether you even, as a matter of conscience, you can refuse to sell contraception. And that's been, you know, it's it's been a, a fight and people have fought it at, at like local levels to say Target needs to provide contraception, emergency contraception. So I think, you know, with the support of the administration, absolutely access to contraception is under threat. Going back to um, to, to Poland as well, I think one of the um, ideas that were, that were being put forward was, um, was punishing not only women, but also medical practitioners who assist with termination and and the, the proposed length of the sentence was was five years for anyone who you know helps a woman have an abortion. It, it's something that at the moment is not being considered seriously, but I think the implication of of, of this proposal are 
far reaching, you know, even when we consider, you know, potential doctors considering different uh, areas of specialism that, that they can choose, you know, I know medical students um, who are, you know, reconsidering their interests in, in, in the reproductive health just because they envisage uh, the dilemmas, uh, the, the challenges that they, that they might face uh, as practitioners. Uh, but even current doctors who, who, who already work in the field, you know, they, they are scared. They are scared of um, being criminalized, but also they are being scared in terms of how their hospitals might be affected, etc. And of course, uh, the more uh, the issue of criminalization of, or some kind of penalty is emphasized, the more uh, practitioners will, um, you know, not help women who seek abortions to even with even referring them to uh, to doctors who who might be able to do it. And I think the indirect consequence of where this debate is heading is that so many um, practitioners are just going to think twice about what they're going to do. And maybe one more thing to add about, you know, the decision-making and how much more difficult is it is being made because of those debates is that, uh, you know, as, as much as pro-life supporters are keen to emphasize where the life begins, I think there's much less clarity about where it ends and where people start dying because one of the sort of vague you know explanations uh, of what doctors are would be allowed to do if, if the, the law is um, you know made stricter is that um, with the proposed law as well, as well the only cases where abortions would be legal would be the cases where the woman is um, at risk of dying. And, and I guess the crucial question is here, you know, at, at what point are we talking about the risk being, you know, life threatening? Um, so those kinds of decisions is just something that, uh, you know, practitioners will, will struggle with, uh, you know, whether it's just a possibility or, you know, whether it's something that's actually being put in place. I think, as you pointed out, Robert, there are so many complications that go into this discourse of rights surrounding reproductive health care. You have the rights of women, you have the right to life, and you even have medical ethics and the considerations of practitioners in the field and the advice they're giving. So for one final question, I'd like to ask our panel and anyone jump in on this. Is rights and a rights framework, universal human rights, the best way to look at reproductive health care? I don't know if it's the best way because, um, as I mentioned, I'm not a legal expert, but I think it's a very good way. And the reason why I say that is because it seems like the usual alternative is a public health framework, which has its uses and can be very useful strategically. But the problem with a lot of public health discourse, and I'm going to generalize here, so apologies for that is there are a lot of assumptions about choice and rationality in it, which I just don't think actually match up with people's experience. I say that as an anthropologist who has actually looked at how people make ethical judgments about reproduction. The kinds of binaries that often get talked about are just not the way that people think about these issues. So that's what I would say about rights discourse. And I think also, to be fair, it's not perfect, but it's it's got us a really long way so far. I mean, I think a potential benefit of thinking about it in terms of rights is that it, it helps one remember that it, this is explicitly political territory, and perhaps it helps us think about power inequalities, about where rights effectively do not exist or, or whatever. So I think that 
it can be depoliticized absolutely by individualizing it. Um, and it, and it provides a, a real challenge for those people who say, you know, who say, oh, well, it, you know, especially when we're talking about the global gag order, <laughs> to really think about what rights are being taken away from people who are very marginalized, people who have, who can exercise few of their human rights. It's helpful to, to think in those terms. Why should you have greater rights than other people have? Um, I think the rights framework is a necessary one, but I, it can't be the only framework mm-hmm. as well. And I think it's, it is important to think about these things, taking into consideration, you know, those different sort of levels of understanding these issues. So, um, and I think, you know, one framework of thinking about it is never going to be sufficient, whether it's human rights, whether it's public health. So I think as social scientists, we also kind of have a role to play in, you know, communicating evidence, uh, you know, in different ways with, you know, whether it's numbers, whether it's, um, you know, people's stories. Uh, and, you know, I think linking the two is quite challenging as well. It's really key to sort of relate it closely to what is actually happening on the ground and, you know, why why we consider these things rights and what actually happens to to people's lives when these rights are being, you know, taken away. So... I think that to the extent that the human rights framework enables sexual and reproductive rights to be considered alongside gender equality and women's rights considerations, then certainly it's a good thing. But at the same time, human rights is not simply a magic wand. And picking up on what Robert said, I mean, just because something's legally permissible doesn't mean that a woman can obtain the procedure or indeed that that she would obtain it because of stigma that still exists in society. So, yeah, I don't think it, we can tackle this problem through a legal framework alone. What's also w- worth pointing out is that lots of people absolutely do not believe in human rights at all. Like, lots of people reject a human rights framework completely out of hand. So even though, you know, maybe ideas of human rights are being backed by some very powerful people, it doesn't mean that everybody accepts them. This has been another Declarations podcast. You can find us on Twitter at DeclarationsPod or on Facebook.com slash DeclarationsPodcast. Thank you for listening to Declarations. You have things like medical ethics that you were talking about, Robert. You have the rights of women. You have the right to life. You have um, you have the right to women. You have. <laughs> I'm just going to start again. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>